Hey everybody, Paul here. And before we get into today's episode, I wanna encourage you to download a chart that I will be referring to throughout this episode. You can get that on my Patreon page. I'll provide a link in the description. But I really think you're going to want to download that. It's like totally free. It's, it's, this isn't like a gimmick or a sales pitch or anything like that. Uh, you're going to want to go over and download that so that this episode will make a little bit more sense because I'm going to be referring to this chart and you can't see it because you're just listening to this. So you're probably at some point going to want to look at that maybe at the very start of the episode. That would probably be the most helpful thing. Uh, so go go ahead check out that link in the description, go over to my Patreon page, download that JPEG. I think it's just a JPEG that I have and it will help you make more sense of today's episode. Perhaps one of the buzziest words being used today to talk about the mass exodus of primarily second-generation evangelicals from traditional Christian religious institutions has been the word deconstruction. It's probably gotten to the point like words we were tossing around years ago, like community, you know, what was another buzzy word to lean into something? I don't know. Sometimes these words begin to lose their value and meaning when they get tossed about and brandied about. In, in so many cliched ways. I still think this word is probably helpful in some regard because I do think it is an accurate description of what many people and probably even many of you who listen and tune into this podcast are going through. It's a process of reevaluating, of tearing down some ideas you once held to and reexamining them. In its best forms, it's remodeling. And in its worst forms, it is a total destruction of your psychological, theological, and philosophical house that leaves you in shambles. So we don't want that. Now, we've seen a lot recently over these last few weeks. We've seen a lot of prominent evangelical authors, speakers, pastors, people we might say with you know, I, I don't want to mean this in a purely negative term, but the, 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 the term does have a negative connotation to it. We, we might say these former Christian celebrities who are publicly questioning or abandoning seemingly core evangelical beliefs on social media. This seems to be happening, just a, a common feature of um, our lives over the last the last few years where some other person that was read or talked about, and we're not, I'm not talking about moral failures. That's a separate category. I, I'm talking about people that have had prominent followings that come out with questions or with a public disavowing of these ideas that many people who, again, are in Protestant evangelical streams in the Christian tradition hold to as core tenets of their faith. These questions and these challenges emerge, and it seems like it's a, an everyday occurrence. We have those experiences, and then we also just have the experiences of people like you and me, right? Regular, everyday people, people that wrestle with doubts and questions, 
people that feel what Charles Taylor, who I've talked about quite a bit in previous episodes, what Charles Taylor called the the cross-pressuring of living in the imminent frame of a secular age where we feel pressured on one side, beset by all sorts of doubts about whether or not transcendence even exists at all, to the pressures on the other side of going, boy, this, uh, this can't be it. It can't be just this imminent world. My experiences can't be limited to simply material processes. That's part of this narrative of the secular age. People like everyday doubters feel this cross-pressuring. And it's as if as we watch these things unfold and maybe experience the unfolding of them in our own lives, it feels as if the the structural integrity of our houses of faith are threatened as we are being called into question on all sides. I, I, I call this I, I call this a house of faith intentionally because if we're going to use terms like deconstruction or remodeling, maybe it's helpful to think of this internal life of faith, these ideas and practices we hold to and believe as a house. And the process of remodeling is a process of going, well, this wasn't functional in our house, or perhaps there was some mold in the walls. Perhaps the the wood has begun to rot away. Our siding has been like one of our former houses has been chipped away at by woodpeckers. <laughs> we we actually had that that problem with a, a house of ours with cedar siding. The woodpeckers came and were just destroying it, you know. And we were patching, patching away, patching away. But at some point, we were that house. We did end up selling it. That house is probably going to need brand new siding altogether. For many people, this this journey of questioning, of trying to figure out, do we need brand new siding? Can we just patch this thing together? Do we just need to demolish the house altogether? Is a process that begins in our late adolescent to early adult years. Maybe it's the social and environmental factors we experience in those years where there may be a higher level of exposure to a variety of divergent worldviews that that are well outside of what we've experienced as a child in our home or in our church or in our Christian school or in our particular community of faith. We get into our late adolescent years and now we've got a driver's license and we're getting a job or we're going off to university or we're just meeting more people outside of our church or our faith context. Maybe it's those new, unique social experiences that that push people to all sorts of questions as they find there's other people out there that view the world differently than we do. Or maybe it's the experience of adulthood with, with all of these significant life choices that we have to make. You know, I used to teach a theology classes to um, high school seniors, and we talk about this critical decade from them being 17, 18 years old to being 27, 28 years old, and all of these 
significant life choices that they'd have to make that would end up shaping and in many ways cementing the next few decades and even sometimes the rest of their life following that critical decade. Maybe it's those experiences of adulthood with all these significant life choices that force us to re-examine our values and to go, boy, if I'm, I'm really going to live this way in the world, I, I really should be certain of, of these values that I hold to. I should really have a feeling of this is, uh, this is what I truly believe if I'm going to act in the world this way. And if I'm going to act in the world this way, not just today, but in a way that affects decades. And even when we bring the possibility of children into the picture, it's going to affect possibly generations of people, the stories, I believe, or again, to use some of the language going back to our Christ and culture series, the spirit that I follow, or I believe that meta story, those invisible transcendent values and ideals, the spirit that I follow is not just going to affect me. This realization dawns on us perhaps in those early adult years that it's not just going to affect me right now, it's going to affect kids and maybe grandkids and the people I work with. And, and maybe that just dawns on us. Or maybe, you know, this early adulthood does frequently bring with it new experiences of suffering that can cause us to re-examine our house of faith. It's experiences like perhaps romantic heartbreak for the first time. Or, or maybe it's a vocational failure. We start off in a particular path. Maybe we decided on a, a major in college and we get into it and the, the math is just too hard. The, the workload is too much. Or we realize we didn't really like this thing at all. Or perhaps we get out into the work world and we lose our job. We're fired. We're laid off. We quit because of experiences of conflict, this vocational failure can cause us to question. Or, or maybe, maybe it's what comes oftentimes in early adulthood, the, the tragic loss of important people in your life, the, the dissolution of lifelong friendships. You know, maybe typically later in life that people lose parents or they lose an important aunt or uncle figure in their life. But this, this isn't always the case. For many people, that starts to hit when they get into their early adult years. And even if it isn't just the, the tragic loss of life, again, we do experience an, as part of this evolution, this personal evolution of our, our, the journey of our life, we experience this dissolution of these these friendships that maybe we had throughout childhood and into our teenage years. And so perhaps all of these factors in our early adult years thrust questions of meaning and purpose into the forefront of our consciousness. I don't want to doubt that any of those factors, I have no doubts that any of those factors are part of the journey. And for many people, this isn't just like a, a early adult stage this this can happen later in life you know it's not that instantly this these sorts of things happen as soon as you turn 18 but what if i'm going to th- what if there's other explanations for this process 
what if faith deconstruction, the process of this deconstructing of a house of faith is simply a symptom of a normal, very normal psychological and cognitive process of development. Dr. Robert Keegan is one of the leading behavioral scientists and psychologists alive today. I'm I'm hoping I'd love to have him on the program at some point. Nothing has been planned or finalized or anything like that, so uh, that's not a promise, but I would love to have him on as a guest. Keegan coined the term meaning-making, which is, of course, part of the title of my podcast because when I first discovered Keegan's work in my graduate work in seminary, I found this this seemingly all-encompassing title of meaning-making to be a helpful, very helpful description of this, this process of theological, philosophical, and psychological activity that we engage in, where we're, we're trying to make sense of our experiences of reality. So, so Dr. Robert Keegan coined this term meaning-making, and he's, he's one of the leading psychologists, behavioral scientists alive today. And this is, again, where you're going to want to refer to that chart that I talked about at the beginning of this podcast, you at this point, you might want to pull that up on your phone or on your computer or wherever you may be listening. If you're listening in your car, please don't do this. But at some point, you're going to want to pull up, you know, maybe take a pit stop at the gas station or and, and open this up before you, you keep driving. But you're going to want to look at this, this chart, which is derived from Keegan's work. According to Keegan's research, most people, and most people meaning those, I'm barring those, he barring, barring those with, you know, cognitive disabilities, for example, barring people with cognitive disabilities, most people follow a consistent or fairly consistent pattern of cognitive, intellectual, and psychological development. And this this process begins in infancy and ideally continues on well into adulthood, as you can see in the picture above. It's not the case that it continues on for everyone. Certainly some people experience sort of stunts in their cognitive, intellectual, intellectual and psychological development. But as you can see in the chart, there are fairly predictable patterns according to age, that many people follow. This first order of development, Keegan calls the impulsive mind, and that's usually, for most people, again, this isn't always the case, but for most people, that takes place between two and six years old. And it's during this phase of development that the individual becomes aware of objects outside of themselves. The content of one's knowing in this stage of development is their own reflexes. They become, you know, aware of the movements of their body. It's in this stage of development that people in that sort of two to six-year-old range typically are subject to, or we could say, if we wanted to frame it in a negative light, we could say enslaved to. I don't want to use that language quite yet, though I think it will come up later, that individuals are subject to their own impulses and their perceptions. As Keegan highlights, their their underlying structure of meaning-making is they're only really able to focus on this singular point 
they have an impulse, they have a perception, and they act upon that uh, perception. Their prefrontal cortex hasn't developed enough. It's similar to the way uh, your, your dog might have a structure, a very basic structure of meaning in their life. And that structure usually looks like I have an appetite and I follow that appetite. I have a feeling, an impulse, and I follow that feeling. And we see that. We see that with children ages, you know, two to seven years old. It's in that range that Keegan calls the, uh, we are in a developmental stage that he calls the impulsive mind. But thankfully, we don't remain there, right? We don't remain enslaved to our impulses. We start this other process of journeying development, and that usually begins, uh, according to Keegan's research, it, it begins around six years old in this second order of development, what he calls moving from the impulsive mind, where one is subject to one's impulses and perceptions, where they can now begin to see that their impulses and perceptions are an object themselves. And they move from being enslaved or subordinated to their impulses and perceptions to beginning to uh, develop deeper interests and desires. It's not just basic impulses like, I'm hungry, I need to eat. You know, at two, maybe to six years old, think of very early stages of a two-year-old. When they're hungry, they may cry, right? When you move typically into the second order, you begin to develop a sense of, I have needs and desires that are a bit more complex. And you can begin to discern categories of your needs. So the underlying structure of meaning-making develops from a single point to a category. And then we move into this third order, all right? This this third order that begins usually, you know, in adolescent stages, right? So the second order, the instrumental mind, again, take a look at this chart, is between usually six years old through adolescence. But as someone heads into their post-adolescent years, late adolescent years, a new order, a new order, a new stage of development, they enter into a new stage of development where they begin to realize that their own needs and interests and desires aren't the only thing that exists. And they become aware of the need for interpersonal relationships and for for mutuality. And they begin to see across categories. So, Using Keegan's model of development thus far, where might faith deconstruction fit in? It, for me, as I interpret this theologically and pastorally, I see this, this faith deconstruction phase fitting in as part of the tail end of a socialized mind process into what Keegan calls in this fourth order of development, that the self-authoring mind. You know, the stories I hear and read from many people who grew up in the church but experienced this sense of deconstruction carry with it many similar features. Usually, these people, again, are oftentimes like second-generation evangelicals. They've had experience in intention an intentional process of developing a socialized mind in their childhood 
and and this this process is very normal. The the, the socializing is a necessary stage of development. You cannot skip the stage of beginning beginning to see beyond one's needs and interests into understanding the needs, the interpersonal relationships that you share with other people. It's a necessary stage of development. People that don't develop that socialized mind really struggle to adapt to society and and, and their community around them. And frequently, they are ones, maybe it's because of a developmental disability, where they are constantly in trouble. They don't fit into the social order because they can't see beyond their own needs and interests. Keegan, in an interview I watched with him, he he talks about this case uh, where a, a guy who had been repeatedly in trouble with the law uh, but, been, but had been granted parole, was talking with his, uh, his counselor, his therapist, about why he chose one day to not participate in a crime that some of his other friends had participated in. I think it was like stealing a car or something. I could be wrong about that. And as this guy who was on parole was sharing with his therapist his reasoning for doing it, he evaluated the consequences of the action. If I steal this car, or if I even associate with these guys that I used to run with, I'm going to get in trouble and there's going to be this consequence. And this consequence is against my ultimate desire to not be in jail, right? So as he evaluated that process, he was still very much using the instrumental mind to just simply evaluate, is this in alignment with my own desires? Well, I would like to take this car, but I would also like to not get in trouble for it. So he decided to not do it. He was able to make a a good value judgment in that second order of thinking. I have this desire, but I also have this desire. And so I don't want that outcome. The therapist then asked the guy on parole, he said, well, she said to him, well, have you ever considered, did it enter into your mind as you were evaluating whether or not to steal this car, the effect it might've had on another person, like the person that owned the car. And again, I, I don't care remember if it was a car. It was stealing something. And the guy said, no, I'm not there yet. Which is really a brilliant observation. This, this guy had had this life of crime primarily because he hadn't moved into this socialized mind. He hadn't moved from the instrumental mind of just seeing his own needs and desires as being the things to fulfill, to understanding that other people have needs and desires. And so that he has to work in this network of people. So if you think about the process of uh, developing a Christian socialized mind in things like church or VBS or Christian schools, youth group, you know, what is typically taught, and it's a necessary part of development has been the use of Christian theology and Christian practices to help move people from the instrumental mind where they are the slave to their own needs, their own interests and desires, into seeing their actions as being profoundly connected to a larger network of human relationships. This is the the difficult time that you you often see youth pastors who work with middle school students they just, the middle school students are, they're trying to instill in them, 
do you see how your action today in youth group, for example, you know, you just didn't stop talking during the lesson today. You kept interrupting and cracking jokes, you know, and we want to move you from just feeling like I have to punish you. And the only reason why you wouldn't do that is because of an immediate consequence. Like we're going to call your parents and you're going to get in trouble or we're going to kick you out of youth group or there's going to be some disciplinary measure. Youth pastors are always trying to move and teachers as well are trying to move middle school students in their adolescence from that basic level of programming in their brain to the next level of seeing how their actions affect the people around them. And so they are moving them into what is hopefully informed by like a Christian ethic, a different, a particular socialized mind, a particular set of values that helps them see that they are to, in the very Christian sense, learn how to love their neighbor as themselves. This process of development in the Christian context teaches children to evaluate how their choices impact the larger community and social order. It teaches them things like how to love their neighbor. In many ways, when I read like Paul's epistles, I I read 1st and 2nd Corinthians, I, I, I see him, if we're gonna take this sort of language from Robert Keegan, I see him pushing them and challenging them to move beyond that the call of following Christ in the world and living in Christian community requires that they move beyond the second order level of thinking, of just thinking about their own needs and interests. And now that part of this Christian formation is moving into this third order of development, of seeing their connection as individuals to the community around them and following Christ's example in the world of washing feet, of taking up a cross. So this is, you know, this is a part, moving in these stages of development, our necessary development. And the thing that I want to bring up in this is not to... Lots of times people, as they go through their deconstruction process and they've gone through this process of sort of a Christianized socializing of their mind, they look back on all of it and they go, oh, it was all terrible. Why did people do this to me? VBS, youth group, all of that stuff, Christian schools. But what they fail to see is that they would be going through a process of developing a socialized mind regardless of the setting. And they should be, in many ways, I'm not, I know I'm sounding preachy here, but I've gone through this myself, guys. They should be moving from a process of going, man, like, I can't believe I had to go through that to hopefully a process of, with all of the, there are negative things that come about in those journeys. In the midst of that, to be thankful that they had people in their lives that were moving them from that second order level of thinking into this positive third order level of thinking, this third order level of development, of moving them into a socialized mind that actually has a long history of working, of working for the benefit of others in community, of per- per- promoting social harmony instead of social discord. 
Now, not all church experiences, VBS, vacation Bible school experiences, youth group experiences, um, Christian school experiences are the same. And many of them carry with them because of the brokenness of the people involved in them, very detrimental experiences. So I do not want to discount that. But what I do want to say is that part of this healthy journey of development for each of us requires that we look back and not wholesale abandon the entirety of a process that we went through because some of it or parts of it were broken. This is the difference again between just chaotic deconstruction and healthy remodeling. So I want to say that because I think if you, and I would encourage you, some of you to take the time to look back on those experiences and to consider the alternatives, right? Maybe go into vacation Bible school where you had, you know, the competition boys versus girls to see who could bring the most money in. You look back on that and you go, that was so dumb or stupid, right? But consider the alternative that uh, for the people that didn't have that experience of being nurtured and shaped and pushed in their development to move beyond the instrumental mind and into the socialized mind. Those that didn't have that at all in their life, those that didn't have that and perhaps like the guy I was referring to in that illustration who simply is in this process of evaluating whether or not he should steal a car or not steal a car by whether or not it will get him in trouble or not get him in trouble. Maybe someone like that who never had someone push them or work them through that next order of development. Consider the alternatives in your life. I don't say that again to detract from the very real challenges that many of you have faced in your catechizing process of moving from the second order to the third order in a Christian context. I don't want to discourage you from coming face to face with some of the really detrimental things that might have happened as part of that journey. But there are also really good people people that were working alongside people that might have been a mess too. And they're trying their best to help you go through this process of development to learn how to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, consider what your life would have looked like if no one taught you and helped you develop this ability to subordinate your own desires and needs for the needs of another human being. Now you might say, well, Paul, that happens elsewhere. It doesn't happen exclusively in Christian institutions. You're right. You're right. It doesn't. It it happens at public schools and it happens on football teams and sports clubs. It happens in dojos where People are learning martial arts. It it happens all over. It happens in mosques. It happens in Jewish synagogues. You are right. But what I would say, even in response to that, is there is still the acceptance. We would have to accept that the movement towards gratifying one's needs and desires alone to understanding how to subordinate those for the sake of another person 
is good, but where does that goodness come from? Why is that the way of being in the world? And if we confess, as I do, that all truth, goodness, and beauty has a singular source in ultimate reality, and that ultimate reality has been made manifest, the one God has been made manifest in the flesh, in Christ, then I have no problem in saying Christ's activity is happening in all of these other places too as a means of grace, as an extension of God's common grace to all people. What happens as one moves out of adolescence? In many cases, a new transition phase begins where one begins to question whether the social group has been defining them and dictating their thinking. Are they nothing more than the social hive that they're a part of? So as we look back on that chart, see as one makes that transition from the instrumental mind, that second order and their underlying structure of meaning making, they begin to, they're able to discern categories in that third order. They, they're starting to see across categories and understanding interpersonal relationships. And yet though, there's still another level of thinking that happens. One begins to see, question whether or not they are simply thinking in the way their, we could say, their hive thinks, right? They begin to re-examine the meta-narratives, the, again, using our language from the Christ in Culture series, the spirit of their community. Particular things about their community may feel like a threat to their survival as an individual, This is also the time when exposure to other ways of seeing the world or to other socialized minds who have a different spirit can provoke greater questions about their identity as an individual. They have recognized the values of others outside of themselves, but they also don't want to be a slave to others either. As one makes this developmental transition, if they do, because not everybody does, as Keegan highlights, they begin to see that the socialized mind that they were catechized into, or some people might say indoctrinated into, but that that might sound too pejorative, they begin to see that that particular hive or that system is one of many other systems. And so, This transition from the third order into the fourth order brings about this process of questioning the system that they were in as they begin to see it as a particular system of thought. How many second-generation evangelicals have you met whose parents left the socialized mind of, let's say, Catholicism, for example, or, or maybe atheism, or or maybe it was the, the hippie psychedelic drug culture that they experienced as a youth. And, and as part of their own process, as the parents' process of self-authoring began, they moved out of those things. They moved out of that way of seeing the world and that, and they moved into becoming an evangelical. And then these parents then raised their kids into a new evangelical socialized mind. 
How many of those second-generation evangelicals now want to leave their parents, what was their new faith of their parents, for their parents' old faith, their previous, let's say, Catholic faith, or we could say the their faith in psychedelic trips. I, I see it all the time. Just a couple weekends ago, so if you remember the last episode I put out, which was our live event that we did up in Otter Tail, and I interviewed a panel of guys, a couple of those guys on that, that panel, both uh, Leonard Jones and Chris Dupre are in their 60s. Leonard is 67. Chris, I can't remember. I think Chris is 63 or 64. Both of them went through the psychedelic movement of the late 60s and early 70s. Both of them lived through that, not just lived through that. They participated in that. Leonard Jones was a hippie. And it's interesting, as I talk to those guys, and part of their story is how the Christ that they encountered was so much greater than their best trip or the best experience of being high or drunk that it transformed them and changed their appetites and it it brought them out of a the hive that they were in the hive think that they were in and they moved into a new way of thinking they 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 in a sense went through a process of what you could call self-authoring, right? They said, "We're I'm rejecting. I see this as a system, systemic way of thinking. I see this and I see the problems with it. Not, not only was it, you could say, some people that come out of like drug culture, right? It, it, it might be a very low-ordered stage of thinking, similar to the guy that goes, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna steal a car because I could get in trouble, they might leave it because the drugs and the alcohol have created more catastrophes than it's worth in their life. And that's still that is a valuable way of thinking. But for these guys, they saw something better outside of those experiences. I, I bring this up because it's so interesting. Things have come full circle now. And I think one of the big questions I get from a lot of people is the question about psychedelics and whether or not the use of psychedelics is advisable, whether psychedelics actually give us somehow and open us up to genuine transcendent experiences of God. And I think, how interesting is this that we're, you know, in this next generation, people that were probably raised by those who had those sorts of psychedelic experiences in the 60s and 70s when the, the really the first wave of it came through the U.S., how many of their children are like now attracted to that thing that they left? It's so interesting to me because I do see, I do see how this is part of a normal process, a normal cognitive development process, a normal process of psychological development for people. This movement away from Oftentimes, again, the, the, the first layer of movement away is a movement away from our parents. And this is, this is an important and a healthy thing. We do have to disassociate ourselves. We, we have to become individuals. Uh, we, we have to be able to live on our own. We have to be able to answer life's tough questions 
on our own and not just call mom and dad every time we confront a, a tra- an issue of tragedy in our life or a question that that befuddles us. We don't just call up mom and dad, right? If somebody's in their 30s and 40s and that's the only mechanism that they have for dealing with life's difficult situations, we would say, wow, they haven't developed the way in the way that they should. They haven't developed fully. But I just find it so interesting the ways that people often rebel in that process of disassociation and individualization. And I think we should be aware of that. As I've talked with people before about this, whether it's about psychedelics or or even, you know, moving into a different faith tradition or a different worldview is to go, okay, well, maybe talk to some people that have actually already come out of that already. Some people in the previous generation. And, and, and figure out from them whether or not the grass is actually greener on the other side or whether you're actually just kind of trading one socialized hive mind mentality for another. So if this process of moving from the socialized mind, that third order of developmental thinking into other orders of thinking, other orders of cognitive development, psychological development are normal and part of the normative process, if that is the case, and I do realize, guys, that you know, as Christians, many of you may have a theological problem with phrases that Keegan uses like self-authoring and self-transforming. Let, let's try not for a moment to not make that a stumbling block to the larger point here that his research is pointing to. If this is a normal process of development, then there are some questions I think we need to wrestle with as you reassess the social mind that you've developed and you attempt to become a, an individual as you as you attempt to step back and assess the system of thinking that you were raised in or that you experienced for a significant portion of your life as you step back and do that i think there's some questions that you should ask yourself if you are going through this sort of process transition process this process of faith deconstruction or faith remodeling. First question here. What's the telos or the end goal of this development? Even if you were to look back on the chart and you go, okay, we're moving from this, moving from this stage of development. I'm moving from my underlying structure of meaning being a single point to underlying understanding categories to moving across categories to seeing things systemically and, and moving from being dependent on my own desires, being a slave to my own desires, to understanding my relationship to individuals, but then moving beyond a sense of slavery to the way other people think, to now thinking for myself, where is this headed? Does it have a telos? What should be the end goal? Well, logically, if there is an ultimate mind behind the matter, and again, I'm, that's we've talked quite quite a bit about this in, in other episodes. Um, and these are 
somewhat Greek categories, the, the categories of mind and matter, or we could say spirit and matter, but I, I wanted to use that to not get confused with the other use of spirit that I've been using throughout this podcast. If there's an ultimate mind behind the matter, we don't just live in a material, purely material universe, and there is an ultimate mind, uh, ultimate reality, if there is, again, for Christians, Jews, Muslims, other theistic traditions, if there is a God, then logically, shouldn't the telos of this development, shouldn't the end goal of this development be the alignment of my mind to the mind, to the ultimate mind, to ultimate reality, to the singular objective perspective in various Christian traditions, we would call this process theosis or sanctification. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, they, and in Catholic, and actually, you know, even Calvin, there are reformers who talk about this process. And they might have some different emphases or differences of opinion on him. But, you know, historically, the church called this process of beginning to see the world more in alignment with the way that God sees it and the way that God sees us, to be able to see things like God, to enjoy in that process greater union with God. They called that process theosis or in more reformed Protestant traditions, we might emphasize some different things, but that process we might call sanctification. It's the process of not conforming to the various socialized minds of the world, like Paul says in Romans 12, but it's a process of renewing one's mind to the mind of God so that you can test the will of God and figure out in the world whether or not you're acting in alignment with this way of being in reality. So what's the telos or end goal of this development? Well, I would say If there is mind behind matter, we want to find out what that mind, that ultimate reality is like. We want to pursue that. We want the alignment of our thoughts with the thoughts, with the way way of seeing the universe that's in alignment with the source of it all. The next question I'd have is what spirits, again, using the framework I've used throughout the Christ and Culture series, what invisible values, what meta-narratives, what transcendent ideals will you allow to shape your new conception of the world? Are they just different socialized minds? You know, as the Who saying, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Keegan highlights how many people don't actually move beyond the socialized mind. Many people stay in that socialized mind. In the context of faith deconstruction or faith remodeling, people can simply move from one hive to another hive as a reaction against their prior hive. This may feel like a process of individualization, but on further examination, they may have just found a new group to think for them. And this is a great, if you, a great way of checking whether or not you have moved beyond this order of thinking is to ask yourself, do I think exactly like everybody else around me in my community or group? Do I ever have a difference of opinion? If no, 
then you might still just be in this third order of thinking. If you move from an evangelical group to like a post-evangelical Christ of culture group and everybody thinks the same way as you and Jesus looks just like your culture does around you, then I actually don't think you have moved into this higher order of thinking. You have just switched to a new hive that thinks for you. The third question I'd ask is, does a radical individualization process, a radical deconstruction, is it, does it cut you off from vital community and human relationship? As Keegan highlights, one can become a slave to their self-authorship in this fourth order of development, just as they become, can become a slave to groupthink in the third order. People who go through transformations in their theology often report feelings of, of being alone in their journey. And, and, and sadly, many churches don't foster an environment where one can be accepted while they question. People in these environments feel as if they may be viewed as a threat to the social order in their church community by others. And, and certainly, we just have to confess that, that some behaviors and ideas do threaten a unifying meta-narrative shared by a church community. And all communities do have unifying values, unifying meta-narratives that they hold to. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a community. But my suggestion as a pastor working through this in our own context is that hopefully this list of behaviors and ideas can be as short as possible. And that should be the goal, is to, to try to keep them as short as possible. And there are certain things, again, that, that do. They just can't fit. They can't fit community, right? There are certain behaviors that just can't work, especially cases of violent behavior, abuse, um, things of that nature. They, they threaten. They really do threaten the health and well-being of others. And so there are certain things that we just go, they can't. And yes, there is a certain core essence of a unifying meta narrative that probably has to be shared as people are going to exist in community together. But hopefully, again, that list of behaviors is, can be as short as possible so that people can receive loving acceptance as people in development because we all are in processes of development. If we can accept that all of us on our journey towards Christ-likeness as part of the spirit of our community, if that is part of our values, our meta-narrative or transcendent ideas, is that we are always on a journey towards Christ-likeness, that people are in development, which I do think we should affirm, if, as if you know, we affirm ideas like theosis or sanctification— then hopefully room for these stages of development should be clearly expressed as one of our highest values. So some final encouragement for those of you who are deconstructing and maybe you don't know what to do. Let me give you some practical, hopefully practical encouragement. Thinking for yourself does not mean thinking by yourself. 
The process of exchanging ideas with others in community does not mean that you're enslaving yourself to a socialized mind of the group. It's actually a recognition that simply following your own impulses and perceptions is actually an order of thinking below the socialized mind. So what oftentimes I see people do is they go, all right, I'm going through this process of recognizing that perhaps I am, my thinking is part of just one system of thinking. So instead of exchanging ideas with other people, perhaps even starting as I would encourage people to do, this is why I do this with my podcast of going, okay, before you jump outside of the Christian tradition into something else, into some other rain, some other meaning-making system, maybe start by comparing some of the ideas that you were exposed to in your unique stream with other streams, which is why I try to bring people on that come from different backgrounds. Uh, we're going to be, as an example, um, having Bruxy Cavey on, uh, I believe it's probably going to be the next episode. He's an Anabaptist pastor. I'm personally not an Anabaptist, but I know that I, there's something I can learn as I get exposed to the ideas that he might hold to, that he might have landed on himself. And so instead of thinking that I need to just completely leave the Christian explanation, and maybe there's just different ways of understanding the Christian story that do a better job than others. Maybe there are weaknesses in the thing that I experienced in my socialized mind and that that socialization process that I need to, before rejecting it, realize, okay, yes, that was one system, but there's other ways of seeing. There are, I can learn a lot as a charismatic guy, charismatic Pentecostal guy. I learned a lot from people in the more reformed system of thinking. So as I move beyond, I realize I am not just doing this alone because what ends up happening for those people that go through this process of deconstruction and then they they move instantly to the wholesale rejection of their entire house and they just burn it to the ground is what I see frequently happen is people revert actually to a lower order of thinking, refer back to that chart. They refer back, they revert, I should say, revert back to instead of thinking across categories, right? And, and to seeing the value of others, they simply give in to their own needs and desires. They let their own needs, interests, and desires dictate how they are going to live in the world. And so this is really, really difficult. It's a challenging process. But I would encourage you guys you know, if you do it in isolation, you're far more likely to maybe even revert back to lower orders of thinking. You're, it's possible that if you don't allow yourself to freely exchange ideas, starting with maybe traditions that are similar to yours, right? Like I would, again, say, start by talking to other Christians in other traditions. Learn from them. Maybe you don't need to wholesale abandon the Christian story. I hope you don't. This is where I've landed. It's also beneficial as you talk to them, talk and learn from people that are in other traditions, religious traditions outside 
of the Christian one. Do some comparison. Evaluate the meaning-making system. Use, hopefully, the the, the six meaning-making questions that I've discussed before in the past as a guide to see how you might answer, the how other traditions might answer these questions, right? Do that process. It's a very helpful one, you know? But the real danger is if you do that in isolation, you don't allow your own ideas to be vetted by others. You don't allow yourself to actually listen to other people because what will end up happening and I hear this a lot. People go, I, you know, I just, I'm following my heart on this. And I get what they mean. And sometimes it's really hard. It's, it's a really hard process. And you just go, I'm just going to go with my gut by myself in isolation. And I think what ends up happening is in a lot of cases, people then just revert to following their own needs, interests, and desires. And it comes at the cost of harm to other people, other people that they don't realize they are in relationship with. So some practical encouragement as we wrap up today's episode. I'd love to hear your thoughts in response to these ideas. Again, please take a look at that chart. Maybe listen back over to this episode. I'd love to hear your thoughts as you respond uh, to these ideas. And you maybe you're on your own journey of reevaluating and moving from that third ordered way of thinking to perhaps higher ordered levels of thinking reflecting on your own process. I want to hear how that process is going. So feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. You can leave comments on Podbean, which is usually the place I link people to because it it goes across Android and Apple platforms. Uh, You can reach out to me that way as well. You can also become a member on Patreon, leave comments in the sections there. Uh, We will continue to try to do Q&A episodes for Patreon members and your support there is incredibly valuable. Finally, I do want to invite you, if this is a podcast that's helpful to you, I would encourage you and invite you to leave a review and to subscribe across platforms of your choice, but especially if you can take the time to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That's the primary place people go to get their podcasts currently. And so seeing your reviews is helpful. It helps people kind of figure out is this worth subscribing to or even giving a listen to and it actually moves things up on the algorithms to make it more easy to find and finally i would encourage you to share the things that you're finding in this podcast helpful with other people as again we talked about in this very episode people going through this developmental process hopefully aren't doing it alone and so you sharing something in the context of relationship and having dialogue about it is one of the best ways to go through this process of uh, development, of cognitive development, of psychological, and ultimately of spiritual development. So I hope you feel comfortable doing that. Again, hope you feel comfortable reaching out to me and we can dialogue. I'll leave all these links that are important to this episode in the description of this podcast below. Thanks again for listening, guys. And until next time.